I've been devoted to a lot of things in my life. I remember as a young adult, I used to head to my friend's place. He will remain nameless because what he used to do is he used to pirate this show called Lost and we would watch it on his computer a season at a time. And so I went to my friend Adam's place and we would do this together. And, uh, and it was back in the day when if you had the file on the computer, there was no technology to like get it to the TV. So we would sit in these rickety chairs in front of his square little computer monitor and watch just episode after episode of Lost, like into the night. We were devoted. I like to think of myself as a family man, and I truly would say that I'm devoted to my wife and devoted to my kids. I, I, I think I'm a devoted husband and father. One of the challenges that comes with that, though, is that I'm also super devoted to my own comfort. And so sometimes being a devoted husband and father and my own comfort, those kind of collide because I'm deeply devoted to both of those things. And if you know me very well, you know I'm devoted to a good bag of chips. I will seek out a good bag of chips at the grocery store. I will carve out time to spend with this bag of chips. And before you know it, when I sit down with that bag of chips, it quickly just becomes a bag. I'm devoted to a good bag of chips. And you know, it's actually really amazing what our devotion says about us. What are you devoted to? And it's also really quite amazing uh, to think about what devotion produces in our lives. We're going to look at four things that the early church were devoted to. Let's hope that they're better than lost in a bag of chips. But just to set it up, just looking earlier in Acts chapter 2, uh, even back into chapter 1, we see that there's this little band of disciples. There's 120 of them. And they are in this upper room and they are devoting themselves to prayer, awaiting the promised Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit descends. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They break out into the street. They uh, proclaim Jesus in all sorts of different languages. Peter, a guy who could never put sentences together that would be constructive at all. We see that in the Gospels. He now, filled with the Spirit, preaches a sermon where 3,000 souls are not just saved, it doesn't say. 3,000 souls are added. Added where? Well, added to the church, added to the 120. At that point in time, you would have opened up the church directory and it would have had about 3,120 people. They knew who they were. These souls were added to the congregation. And now in the text that we are looking at today, they start to uh, kind of come together. And, um, and so we're going to look at the early Christian community and four things they were devoted to. Here they are. The early Christian community was devoted to being a, first, learning community. Second, a loving community. Third, a worshiping church. Sorry, I should be saying church the whole time. And fourth, a witnessing church. The early Christian community was devoted to being a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and a witnessing church. Now, uh, uh, my, my sermon time is going to be a little bit different this week in that after every one of those uh, points, elements that we see in the text, I'm going to stop and ask a number of, let's call them diagnostic questions. They are meant to convict you, okay, each time, um, or encourage you, but I think they'll do a bit of both because that's what they do in me. Um, that's intentional. I, there, there's this beautiful church 
And they're devoted to four things. And I just want to press that a little bit and see where our devotion lies. So we're going to ask those diagnostic questions after each. And then I want to close that time with with an encouragement. So here's the first. The early Christian community was devoted to being a learning church. Look at what the text says in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We had our our uh, latest baptism and ministry partnership class this weekend because to me, preaching four sermons in a weekend isn't enough. Let's add a three-hour class to the mix. So we did that, and a portion of the baptism and ministry partnership class is really all about doctrine. And every time I start the section in the same way, we start this conversation and study of doctrine with the Word of God, with the Bible, And after we start there and talk about uh, the, the Bible, I always ask the same question. And it's this, why do we start with the Bible? Why? In the class, why do we start the doctrine section with that? As Christians, right, you'd think maybe we start with God and who God is or the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Or maybe we'd start with the gospel. I mean, we we try to be a church centered on the gospel. Why don't we start there? And the answer is, is because actually the Bible informs everything else. And I think that's precisely why Luke places it first here as as well. It informs the rest. So it tells us what this early church was devoted to. And the first thing it says is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. God revealed himself to us in a book. Christianity in that sense is a word-based faith. He gave us his word and he wrote it down. He wrote down the words that we could hear them, study them, and know them. And this is really important because if we started with anything else than with, than with God's word, um, we run into trouble because our hearts are not naturally good. Our, our sin makes us think wrongly. It distorts us. I said last week that that's why following your heart is an utter disaster because it will lead you astray. Uh, and so uh, what we need to do is we need to be people who learn the word of God, who memorize it. Back in Deuteronomy, we see that they would um, put it on their doorposts. They were instructed to put it on their doorposts and have it on their foreheads. And so some Orthodox Jews took that seriously. And there's a little box that sometimes they wear on their foreheads. And inside is a tiny scroll of the law. Or on a doorpost is inside of this box a tiny scroll of the law because they were literally putting it there. I think it's figurative language that is to say, have on your mind God's word. And as you walk in and out of your house, and as you go on the way, as you walk, think about God's word and tell it to your children and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that's exactly what we see this church uh, forming around, is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a learning church. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Is that anybody's life verse here? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. There's a lot of Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, life verses in the room and at home. But Jeremiah 17 tells us the truth about our hearts. It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And the apostles understood that Christianity is this word-based faith and his word informs the rest. And so these earliest Christians would gather around the word. If you pick it up in verse 43, it says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
Now, I think what's going on there is primarily the, the signs and wonders are what we could call authenticating ministry of the apostles. Jesus performed miracles. And even in Jesus' ministry, it was authenticating his words. So, so for example, Jesus raised a, a man named Lazarus back from the dead. You know what happened to Lazarus a few years later? He died again. Like all that happened for Lazarus is he died twice. <laughs> it's a good miracle, but like, but you know why Jesus did it? It authenticated his ministry so that when Jesus stood up and said, I am the life. And then he shows that he actually has power over the grave. We're to go, ah. And so here Jesus has ascended. He's given his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's moving in power. The apostolic ministry, are, they're proclaiming Jesus. And then they too are performing these signs and wonders. And people go, wait a minute. They're filled with the Spirit of God. We need to listen to them. The gospel is true news. John Stott, he was a 20th century pastor theologian in London, said the Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. What I'm holding in my hands are the recorded words of the apostles guided by the Holy Spirit that God saw fit to include in the scriptures. The early church gathered around the teachings of Jesus that the apostles witnessed, that Jesus taught them, and that they taught to the church. And, and on and on throughout the book of Acts, in, in, in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 included, the apostles taught everyone about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, from the scriptures. Paul, the apostle, carries on this, this word ministry, that, they, that they, they were this learning church and they sat under the word. This is why we make it such a focal point of our gatherings. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul's word to Timothy, the young pastor, is persist, persevere in teaching and practicing doctrine. And the church, in fact, is preserved through this as well. Paul said the same thing to Titus in Titus 2.1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Gather the church around the teaching that we might learn the truths about God. Colossians 1:28 says the same thing. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here's what that means. This commitment to the word of God is a commitment to learning the truths about God and about ourselves. It tells the truth about us and leads from salvation by hearing to maturity in the faith. We continue to be a learning church. That's what we see in this earliest church. They were a learning church. Earlier in the week, our pastors participated in a virtual conference um, because live conferences can't really happen at this point. And the final speaker was uh, a man I've appreciated for a long time. His name's Ray Ortland Jr. He just retired from pastoral ministry, but in no way has retired from ministry. He gave a wonderful sermon, but... When Ray Ortland Jr. was a little boy, his dad, also a pastor, wrote in the first Bible he ever gave Ray Jr., and he wrote this in the front. Bud, nothing could be greater than to have a son, a son who loves the Lord and walks with him. Your mother and I have found this book, the Bible, our dearest treasure. We give it to you, and doing so can give you nothing 
greater. Be a student of the Bible and your life will be full of blessing. We love you, Dad. Jen Wilkin wrote, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. That's deep. (laughs) The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Why would they give themselves to being learners? Why would they say that the first thing they were devoted to was the apostles teaching what we have in the New Testament here? Know why teaching is a focal point of our gatherings? If you've spent any significant amount of time in the church, right, you know that this is the truth, that the gospel is contained, that we discover that. And that's the point. This church, they were so enthralled with Jesus. They had been captured by the gospel. So they wanted to know him more and live for him. The early Christian community was devoted to being a learning church for they had encountered Jesus and simply wanted to grow in their knowledge of him and relationship with him. All right, here's a few diagnostic questions. You ready? Feels a little bit abrupt, but let's just lean into this. I don't want you to scribble all of these down. I want you to listen for something that can convict and something that can encourage. Diagnostic questions. First, are you devoted to the word of God? Are you devoted to the word of God? Second, Are you regularly and humbly sitting under the authority and teaching of the word? I don't know if this season in the life of the church and in in society during this pandemic, I don't know if that's led to you catching more of our services or less of them. Uh, More teaching of the Bible or, or less of it. So a question is, are you regularly and humbly sitting under the authority and teaching of the word? We are bombarded with so much information. What's shaping you? Is the word of God and its teaching shaping you? Third, when you are confronted with hard truths of scripture, are you repenting in light of them? Like I said, the Bible tells the truth about ourselves. And so when it shines a light on on areas of your sin, what do you do? When confronted, do you repent in light of them? Fourth, are you being renewed in the gospel? daily. Someone asked me recently, hey, how, how much should I read the Bible? Like, how often should I read the Bible? And I responded to him, well, as often as you want to hear from God. How much should I read the Bible? Well, as often as you want to hear from God. He wrote a book, Christianity is a Word-Based Faith. He tells us who he is, who we are, what salvation is, and how we can know him more. And lastly, are you teaching the Bible to others regularly? Our mission here at Central is that we exist to be authentic followers of Jesus who lead others to follow him. Another way of putting that is we want to grow the kind of disciples in our church who become disciple makers, meaning we learn God's word. We are learners ourselves, but we, we, we don't just learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn exclusively. We learn and we learn so that we can pivot and teach and learn and teach and learn and teach. Are you teaching the Bible regularly to others? Few diagnostic questions to consider. Second, let's move on to the next. The early Christian community was devoted to being a loving church. The text says this, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. What comes to mind when you hear the word fellowship? I think, in my opinion, I think this word is one of the words that's been hijacked in the church, fellowship. It conjures up images to me of a damp church basement, stale cookies, lemon water, 
It's like the fellowship hall, you know? And you're like, that sounds like the worst. That's fellowship? Gross, you know? It's one of those Christianese phrases that seems to popularly mean hanging out with other Christians. Hey, do you want a fellowship together? What do you mean? Like get together and play Settlers of Catan? Like is that, is that, that's nothing wrong with that. We should get together and be intentional about all of that. But I think we use the word fellowship, we insert it in when it's just sort of like, let's hang out together. But when our text reads that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, it means they were devoted to meeting with and loving each other. The word means sharing or having in common or participating with. It goes on to say in verse 44 and 45, listen to this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now that is staggering. That is fascinating. I just need to clarify something here. I think there's a couple ditches that we can run ourselves into here. We can say it's mandated. See, everybody needs to sell all their stuff and live communally and share all equally. Or we can run the other way and say, well, look, already by Acts chapter four and five, Ananias and Sapphira, like they're already starting to mess this up when they sell their stuff and all that kind of stuff. We shouldn't do that. We don't need to do that. And we can quickly say, not everybody did. See, they kept meeting in houses. Clearly people didn't sell all their stuff. All of that, I, don't, I want us to stay out of both ditches. One thing I want to clarify is this. Um, what we see in Acts chapter two is different than communism. <laughs> communism or forms of socialism have to do with mandated sharing. That's not what's happening in Acts chapter two. It's the overflow, this voluntary overflow that of just what Jesus has been doing in their lives and they want to take care of each other because Jesus has so cared for them. The point is this, this was a community marked by generosity. These first century Jesus followers shared a common way of life. They were spiritually united as believers and this spiritual union worked itself out into practical acts of love and support. We did a sermon series a few years ago and uh, I love making up words. And so we made up a word, we called the sermon series one anothering. And it had to do with studying all the one another passages in the New Testament. Because all of the one another's in the New Testament refer to Christian community in the local church. That was always the way the reference was used. Um, it's not going to be up on the screen, and I'm going to zip through these fast, but they underscore the significance of an early spirit of real fellowship among the early community. Listen to what marked their fellowship. John 13, 34, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Romans 12, 5, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Romans 12, 10, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 15, 14, instruct one another. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another through love. Galatians 6, 2, carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.2, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Philippians 2.3, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, always pursue what is good for one another. 
Hebrews 10, 24. Stay with me. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. James 4, 11, Don't speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 1 Peter 4, 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Oh man, being hospitable is one thing, but being hospitable without complaining? Come on, Peter. 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us. I've got a challenge for you. If you use the word fellowship in the future, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of all of those one another's, or as many as you can remember, the one another's I just mentioned, and attach those to the word fellowship. You want, should we fellowship? Should we gather in fellowship? You bet we should. So we should bear one another and there's burdens. We should care for one another, love one another deeply, be hospitable to one another, be generous to each other, confess our sins to one another, Think of those and think of the spirit of togetherness and generosity among this early church when you use the word fellowship. Let's redeem the word in the church, okay? One of the actual cool things that happened during COVID early on is that we were able to start something that we call help in time of need here, which has been really cool. Um, we have over 70 individuals who have said, yes, I will help in response to needs that arise. And then every so often somebody will submit uh, something they need help for. And it's been amazing to see Ron's been coordinating that. And oftentimes a request will be sent out by him or one of our other pastors. And typically within 10 minutes, someone responds and said, yep, I'll take care of it. Okay, so let me explain this scenario. Earlier this week, a young mom reached out and said, my husband's out of town working out of town and my minivan just broke down <laughs> and I've got my kids and I'm stuck. Like, what do I do? Um, so Ron reached out to the help in time of need group. Anyone mechanically inclined? Five mechanics responded. Someone's able to sort it out and help this young mom. That's community life. It's phenomenal. I have observed in, in mainly in the context of our life groups, but, but church-wide as well, that there are those who foster children in our church who have adopted children, who have children with special needs or are simply exhausted parents and others, like a community of others, step in and do respite care and help and make meals and clean the house for, for these exhausted parents. People who come across financial needs and they're just those lovingly, quietly who go around and want to meet those. Uh, caring for someone who's sick or recovering from surgery and others step in to bless and make meals and clean the house and take care of them and take them to appointments. We have a group in our church who go and visit those from our church family who are in care homes and not able to come to us. So we go to them. On and on and on I could go, and it's so encouraging to see the way that we strive to be a community like these early Christians, because the early Christian community was devoted to being a loving community. Why? That sounds exhausting if it's just another thing to add to your calendar, or that you're supposed to do to be a good Christian. But listen, these early Christians realized that Jesus pursued them with his love, with his grace and that he stepped into their lives and met their deepest need. And when that connection is made in your heart and mind, it becomes joy to look around and say, now who can I bless? 
So some diagnostic questions to ask of ourselves. I'm asking these of myself. These are questions I'm legitimately asking myself. So don't feel that this is heavy-handed, okay? (laughs) Here's another set of diagnostic questions. Are you working at building deep relationships with others in the church? Which do you love more? Listen closely. Which do you love more? The idea of Christian community or the actual people in our church? Are you more prone to complaining about a lack of community or more prone to asserting yourself to serve and love others in our church? It's tempting to go, hey, this doesn't look like the early church, rather than step in and embody the culture of the early church. Do you show up earlier, stay late after large and small gatherings, at least long enough to connect with others? Are you involved in fellow believers' lives throughout the week? And are you grateful for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you thanked God for them? Have you told them what they mean to you? A few diagnostic questions. Let's move on to the third. You're not listening fast enough. You're going to have to pick it up. Here we go. Here's the third. The early Christian community was devoted to being a worshiping church. Again, the text says, and they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The church's fellowship wasn't only expressed through their care for one another and sitting under the teaching of the apostles, but through their worship as well. Throughout church history, listen, revivals have always been accompanied by honest repentance, extended times of corporate worship, and fervent prayer. And we see those ingredients all happening in the early church. It's no wonder that the church was set ablaze. Now, there are two aspects of the early church's worship that exemplify its balance. Here's the first. It was both formal and informal. Verse 46 says this, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They would go and essentially have the large gathering at the temple. It was the only place where the thousands could gather and they could actually meet. Probably the outer courts of the temple. And they would worship. They would probably participate in the prayers at the temple, but probably from the get-go, they stopped participating in the sacrificial system of Judaism. Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice, and yet they would meet there, they would worship there, they would proclaim Christ there, but they would also then break, break it down, and they would meet in each other's homes, and they would share a common meal we, we also see that this likely means two things at once, a common meal and the Lord's Supper. At some point in their sharing of a meal, likely the, the owner of the home would stand up at one point and break bread and, and offer the cup and they would take communion together in that setting. And we see that they did this day by day. It was both formal and informal, the church's worship. And second, it was both reverent and joyful. Verse 43 says, and awe came upon every soul. Verse 46 says, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And verse 47 tells us they were praising God. This word awe means reverence or a fear of God that that, that has to do with a profound respect. And they had glad, joyful hearts and praise to God that characterized them. For all the generous ministry they're involved in, It's accompanied by joy and glad hearts and ongoing worship and praise of God. See, the early Christian community was devoted to being a worshiping community, a worshiping church. Because they had been confronted with the gracious love of Christ, they couldn't help but praise him. And it's noted 
in this early church. A few diagnostic questions for us. Are you praising God with others in large and small gatherings? I would consider this maybe a mid-sized gathering. We don't have the luxury of the large gathering in this season, but are you praising God with others in larger and smaller gatherings? Do you approach the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? This was a part of their worship, and we have instructions about how to do that and not flippantly. Are you experiencing awe and joy in the Christian life and in gatherings you attend? Are you marked by awe and joy? Do you show up early and stay after large gatherings long enough to connect with others? I think I said that already. There was a time in my life where I would intentionally arrive late, slip in, and I could tell it was the last song, so I quickly slip out, and then I didn't have to, you know, be in community with these folks. That was too much. That was too scary. I wasn't really interested in that. And so I think the call of being a worshiping people is to actually be able to connect with each other, even in difficult times to do so. Are you praying with fellow believers? And are you grateful for the privilege of gathering corporately? I think it's something that we've, we've all come to appreciate more than we ever have before. Finally, fourth, the early Christian community was devoted to being a witnessing church. If we jump to four, verse 47, it says this, that they were having favor with all the people. That's, that's just the locals. That's everybody around. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Daryl Bach wrote about this, that in Acts, we never see a community turned so inward that taking the message to those outside and engaging with those outside is forgotten and ignored. We never see that in, in, in the church in Acts. And if we break down this verse, verse 37, 47, there are at least three vital lessons we can learn about local church evangelism from the first Jerusalem church. And I, I've learned this from John Stott. He noted that Jesus himself did it. It says the Lord added to their number daily. The Lord did it. Now, yes, he did it through preaching and their witnessing and, and their example of praising God and their impressive love for each other and their common life, but he did it. Jesus is the head of the church and he builds his church. He alone has the power to save. Second, he added to their number those who were being saved. He didn't add them to the church without saving them, nor did he save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership belonged together and still do. Third, Jesus added people daily. This is, the, this is the incredible beginning of the church. It was quite miraculous. But we also see that, the, the, that this early church, just as worship was daily for them, so was their witness. Praise and proclamation were both natural overflow of hearts full of the Holy Spirit. And so just as their witness was continuous, so were conversions. Because they were people of praise and proclamation. They were people of worship and witness. See, the early Christian community was devoted to being a witnessing church. Jesus sought and saved them. They couldn't help but share the hope of Christ with those around them. Quickly, some diagnostic questions on this one. First, how are you doing at sharing the gospel with unbelievers in your sphere of influence? Listen, you have neighbors I don't have. You have coworkers that others of us don't have. People in your life, family that, that we don't know. 
How are you doing at sharing the gospel with unbelievers in your sphere? Are you burdened for the lost? This early church, it was their great joy to be quite public about their faith. I, have, I just kind of envision people's faces were kind of up against the glass, just looking in at this church, like, what's going on here? I want to be a part of it. And they desperately wanted people to come to know Jesus as they had. Does a burden for the lost lead you to pray and seek opportunities to lead others to salvation? And here's, I think, hopefully a timely question for you. Is there a winsome attractiveness to your faith that others see? Is there a winsome attractiveness? Are people like, ooh, gross, I don't want to be a part of that. Oh man, I got a glimpse into that church, ugh. Or is it like, there's something about them, I can't put my finger on it, but it's beautiful. Is there a winsome attractiveness to your faith? There certainly was in the early church. Now, as we close, I would be an absolutely terrible preacher if I sent you out right now. Because I, I think that the emphasis so far has been, look at this devoted church. We should be a devoted church. Are you devoted? And, and I think that that's fair. Um, we're given a great example here of devotion that we should pursue. But, but here's a reality I do want to leave you with. I want you leaving, going out the doors. I want you kind of going on with your day this way. Their devotion to these four things is certainly important, but they're byproducts of people who have been captured by Jesus and empowered by his spirit. I want you leaving here saying, Jesus is amazing. I want more of him. I want Jesus to do these things in my life and our church. Here's something wonderful that I get excited about. The church is a movement, not a place. The Greek word for church is ecclesia, which has to do with an assembly. But I think we've lost some of that. The church is the gathered people. Now listen, the word we use in English for church comes from the German word kirche. Do you know what kirche actually means? A place you gather for religious purposes. You see how we're losing it? Ecclesia, the assembly, the people of God who love him, who encourage each other in him, who serve together, bless together, point one another to Christ and influence the world. Kirche, church, place you gather for some of your religious observances. The original church was a movement gathered around a mission. It's been put this way, God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. You know how I can say that? Acts chapter one, we see the mission. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the mission. And then it's Acts chapter two that he starts to build his church for his mission. That's why we exist. And the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. The church is a movement. And I, I, I love to be a part of it. I love to be encouraged by fellow believers. I love to sit under the apostolic teaching, the teaching that God has given us to learn from. And the Christian community, this Christian community we see in the first two chapters of Acts had two traits about them that shaped their devotion to the four things that didn't feel like burden. It all felt like joy because they had these two traits. They had been compelled, captured by the message. And they had encountered and been filled by the Holy Spirit. 
They had been empowered by the Holy Spirit and they were compelled by the gospel. And that led them to be devoted to learning, loving, worshiping, and witnessing. Let's seek Jesus together and invite him to use us as a movement for his mission. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, I thank you for this text. I've been approaching it all week. This is a text I love so much. Just approaching it, Matt, don't mess this up. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, Jesus, I just pray that you would leave us with a few things today. I pray that you would leave us both with a burden uh, to be a community like this first church. But Lord, I pray that you wouldn't leave us with such a burden that we feel like we can't do anything or we feel guilty. Lord, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the gospel that says Jesus paid it all. Thank you for your spirit that came to indwell us and empower us for the mission you have us on. Lord, may we be a learning church. May we be a loving church. May we be a worshiping church. And may we be a witnessing church. For your fame and glory, Jesus. Amen.